Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, hey, Ben, we are talking about Alma 36 through 38 today. I think we're talking about Alma 36 through 38. It's Alma 36 through 38, right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, this is where Alma begins his commandments, is what it, we call it here in the chapter headings, the commandments of Alma to his son, Helaman. So we get Helaman in 36 and 37, and then Shiblon in 38. This is, again, another sort of interlude before we go into the what's referred to as the war chapters. These are Alma's expounding of his experiences and doctrine to his sons. The context of this is interesting because just at the at the end of chapter thirty five, Alma says that it's it it appears that the reason for Alma doing this is in in verse fifteen. It says, "Being grieved for the iniquity of his people, yea, for the wars and the bloodsheds and the contentions which were among them, and having been to declare the word or sent to declare the word among all the people in every city, and seeing that the hearts of the people began to wax hard." and that they began to be offended because of the strictness of the word. His heart was exceedingly sorrowful. Therefore, he caused that his sons should be gathered together, that he might give unto them every one his charge separately concerning the things pertaining unto righteousness. Uh, To me, this kind of says Alma feels he's getting old. His time is coming to an end in some way or another, and it's going to now be his son's responsibility to carry on this work of ministry in trying to preach, and as he says in chapter 31, you know, use the virtue of the word of God to bring peace rather than the sword. And so here Alma is trying to prepare his sons for this responsibility. Yeah, isn't it fascinating? We've talked a little bit about it too, about how Mormon is laying this story out. It's fascinating how he's laying this out because we have Alma, who is beginning the story in Alma 1 as the chief judge of the land, he's also the high priest, he goes through his own process of learning that the sword is a type of power to be able to cure certain social ills. But he learns there in battle that there are better, more effective, more eternal, more godlike ways than what he was doing with Amlicite, you know, in chapter two. And we talked about that for a little bit. And also in from 419 about how Alma had recognized about the power of testimony in converting society and in taking care of those social ills. And then Mormon takes us on this journey of Alma's missionary work to the Nephites and then the sons of Mosiah's missionary work to the Lamanites. And it, it seems that Mormon's being very intentional in showing us that first half, saying, you know what, this is what it's going to look like to carry the gospel forward to the people who have already had the covenant, the people who should already know better. 
And then here's a story about how the gospel is going to look like it's going to go forward to people who don't know better and have never had the record, who've never had that knowledge before, but who you perceive as being completely unworthy and unable to even accept anything that you're saying. And by the way, in both cases, you're going to be led to a very heavy state of persecution. In the first case, we have the fires of Ammonihah and the martyrdom and the witness and the testimony that we talked about there. To the other story, you're going to have the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. You're going to go have self-sacrificial moments of taking your cross to Calvary for the other. And what Christ has done for us in infinite and eternal ways, you're going to do in temporal and finite ways. And then, in, and as if that isn't clear enough, in chapter 28, Alma then comes along and completely spells it out for us. And he shows us exactly what he's been doing there in the very last chapters of, of Alma 28. And then we have Korahor. We have the stories of the Zoramites. And then those, those stories of the Zoramites lead us right to where we're at. So what is Mormon trying to get at? Where is he leading us? How is this all working now that we've finished the missionary stories? We have this little interlude of Korahor, little interlude of the Zoramites, and now he's talking to his sons? I know, it's interesting. Well, you know, as you were saying that, um, I realized that is sort of one way to split up this this narrative into some different parts. You know, the Nephites, his first is his mission to the Nephites. These are people that uh, have the church established among them and are professing members of the church or know about it already. And he's preaching to them. Then we get the story of the Lamanites, the sons of Mosiah going to the Lamanites, a people who've never had it. Right. And then we get this story of Korahor, someone who's just a complete rejection of anything whatsoever, um, this Antichrist. And then we get the story of the Zoramites, a people who were part of the church and then have left and rejected that. And all of the, in all of these situations, this is Alma going to these people, including, you know, I, I didn't include the Ammonihah, but you were talking about that. But that these are just all these different scenarios and cases that come up of Alma preaching in all these different circumstances. And that's sort of what he is then able to come back and bring to his sons, right? He's, he's had all of these experiences. And so now he sits his sons down and he says, I can tell you by my experience. And he, he talks to him and he says, I've been supported by the Lord in all kinds of trials and tribulations. I couldn't even begin to explain all of them to you. You know, maybe he has told him a lot of the stories. Helaman knew about a lot of the stuff already. But anyway, it's just, just interesting to see all the different types of scenarios that Alma is put in in terms of the the people that he's preaching the gospel to their state their spiritual state or profession of faith so to speak or no profession of faith in the case of Korahor so yeah so i think if mormon is really trying to of, of all the records he can put forward of all of the stories that he could have taken out of all the library of the nephites that this is what mormon gives us i think there's a, a very much an intentionality of of these stories just like you said ben there it's like this group of people, this is what it looks like. This is a group of people, this is what it looks like. This person who is an antichrist, these people who have defected. Let me give you as many scenarios. And I wonder in this, 
and this is just me thinking right now, and it's, I'm purely speculating, but I wonder if maybe Mormon has been confronted in his life in talking to his own people at the very end when they have presented these arguments, because this is how I, I deal in social media too, is I kind of throw an idea out there and I see what comes back and then that I know how to respond to that. But when is Mormon responding to his own criticism or to the criticisms against him in his own day in writing this to where he's thinking these things through that there could become criticisms of how to, of how to deal with the people of the church and how to deal with people who the covenant house of Israel or the, you know, who are the Nephites and how they view the Lamanites. How do we deal with people who we think are completely beyond saving? And the, uh, anyway, it's, I, I think there's just a lot of power there. And then when we get into Alma 36, my goodness, we could spend, we could spend hours here. <laughs> Alma, there's so much here. Yeah, Alma 36 is um, just poetry, right? The whole thing's just poetry. There's always been a discussion about how this fits into the whole narrative of, you know, the whole Joseph Smith made everything up narrative. This is always posed by apologists. Yeah, well, what about Alma 36, chiasmus and all that stuff, right? I don't know. I don't I don't necessarily need to get into all the literary criticisms of it, but 36 is beautiful just like in its own right of of poetry, right? And I don't know who is the the person who made all this up in the Joseph Smith made everything up narrative. Is this is this Oliver Cowdery's creation? Is this Martin Harris's creation? You know, who could have written this? Who could have written chapter 36? I don't know. I don't I don't know. Yeah, I, I in fact I've talked to so many people about the possibilities of who else could have written the text. And I remember talking with uh, with one of my professors when I was going through history at, uh, at the university here to my, next to my home. And, and I, was getting, I was going through the master's program in history, and we were talking about LDS church history. And the professor I had, she just happened to have a particular interest in LDS church history as a part of American history. And it was just a fascinating discussion because she wasn't LDS, but yet she's using the exact same documents for church history that the church uses. I mean, just the historical record is the historical record. And so I asked her, I said, so everything that you've discussed, who do you think wrote the Book of Mormon? Um, it's not a miraculous thing that Joseph Smith, you know, we say he translated the Book of Mormon. Just academically, <laughs> what's your academic opinion, you know? That's exactly right. Like, what's your academic opinion? And she just kind of shrugged her shoulders and she says, I have no idea. It's a huge question mark. Like, like there's just the timeline of how it all works out and who he was involved with at the time. It was, it's, it's this huge question mark in academics. And I think that's absolutely fascinating. But yeah, Alma 36, the chiasmus has been kind of a fascinating thing to do, to research over the years, but it's not one that I, when I come to 36, that's not the thing that always pops out for me. <laughs> but I, I read yeah. through 36 and I'm like, oh yeah, that chiasmus was here. And, and I've, I've jotted it out a little bit in my own scriptures and marking, but uh, but yeah, it's I, I think there's just so much here as far as who Alma is. Um, what I really have enjoyed about Alma 36 is what I've been studying called the epistemology of Revelation. But I, I love Revelation and about how we receive Revelation and how Alma receives a Revelation and how he interprets that. And so to get into Alma 36, because now he's talking to Helaman about his conversion story. And there's so much about Alma that makes so much sense once we start connecting his actual experience in Mosiah 27 to what he's talking about here in Alma 36. Uh, but man, there's a lot of discrepancy. 
discrepancies is a negative word. There's a lot of Alma's story in Alma 36 that doesn't exactly match the Mosiah 27 narrative. I think that's pretty interesting. Well, the Mosiah 27 narrative um, is most likely the record that was kept by Mosiah, right? So Mosiah had not given the record yet to someone else. So 20, uh, Mosiah 27 is a secondhand account of what happened. Well, it's a thirdhand account because it's Mormon that is uh, abridging the record that Mosiah or Mosiah's scribe wrote. Right. And Alma 36 actually is uh, Mormon simply uh, transcribing Alma's actual words here. We have a first person account. So this isn't an abridgment of Mormon. Um, so it's going to have different perspectives, obviously. And uh, kind of back to the, the point of who wrote this chapter, you know, if if it wasn't Alma, um, I don't know, but. I read it, and whoever wrote this chapter had an experience. This wasn't made up. And yeah, you, you can't make things like this up. These yeah. kinds of stories that come out like this, you have to have personal experiences to write stuff like this. Yeah. So uh, I, I love how he tells the story here of the angel, especially the part where he gets to here. He says, verse 5, If I had not been born of God, I should not have known these things. But God has, by the mouth of his holy angel, made these things known unto me, not of any worthiness of myself. Goodness, we could probably talk for quite a while about that word worthiness. <laughs> <laughs> a really it's got a lot right? of baggage, doesn't it? It, it um, does. Uh, but, but in any case, um, I, the verse 6 is, is interesting in that context. He says, For I went about with the sons of Mosiah seeking to destroy the church of God. In other words, and then he goes on to talk about how the Lord in his mercy redeemed him. In other words, I was doing, I was actively sinning, actively rejecting, rebelling against the light that I had been given. And the Lord was still able to be merciful to me. And, you know, this kind of takes me back to the discussion that we had last week about, you, know, you brought up a story, you know, in the gutter and the Lord could hear your prayer, you know, and this is, uh, back to the discussion of, uh, is it Zenic when he talks about, it goes through all the different places we can pray and yeah. that the Lord can reach out to us in mercy and, and so often does or, or is there, um, to reach out to us in mercy, even, even when we might be actively, um, rebelling. Uh, the Lord's mercy is still right there for us. And Alma seems to be trying to convey this to Helaman. You know, he's like, the Lord is so great in his mercy that even when I went out to try to destroy the church, he was still there. <laughs> and uh, verse seven, <clears throat> we all fell to the earth for the fear of the Lord came upon us. This is back to our discussion about perspective. Alma in this moment is viewing God with fear. Right. And for the next 10 verses, he describes his experience with this fear and the torment that this fear of the judgment of God causes him. And the, the way that he describes it is just amazing. The verse nine, as I was reading this, I think, in my opinion, 
Ben Peterson's opinion, verse 9 has some punctuation problems that are wrong because it makes no sense, honestly, with the punctuation (laughs) that's there. Um, It says, if thou wilt of thyself be destroyed, seek no more to destroy the church of God. Well, that doesn't make any sense. If you want to be destroyed, don't seek to destroy the church of God anymore. That that that's not what we're trying to get here. So I I fixed the punctuation on it, and um, they can burn me at the stake if they want. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I said, if thou wilt of thyself, comma, be destroyed. Period. Capital S. Seek no more to destroy the church of God. So we know when the Book of Mormon was uh, translated, when Joseph Smith dictated it to Oliver Cowdery for the most part, he gave no punctuation. The punctuation was added later by the uh, typist, or not the typist, <laughs> the printer, right? And uh, so if if I were to make corrections to the Book of Mormon, because I'm a scholar, right? No, I have no idea what I'm talking about. But I would, I would make those punctuation changes because then it makes sense. If thou wilt of thyself, be destroyed. And then he get, the angel gives a commandment, seek no more to destroy the church of God. And that makes more sense to me. So, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I absolutely love that. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mark that in. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, you know, this, going back to worthiness, because that's not a can of worms. Um, let's you know, open that a little bit. One of the things that I've been coming to in my own discipleship is this idea of always already being worthy. And I think in a lot of ways in our in church culture, we have created worthiness as a metaphysical distinction to where it's about the nature of the person themselves, that that person is themselves unworthy or that they are unclean. And it, it tends to see, you know, on the actual person. And I think we can talk about it metaphorically that way. But I think the way it actually plays out uh, is far more epistemologically than, metaf- than metaphysically. And what that means is that we're, we're having two discussions. One is a discussion of what reality is, and the other is a discussion of how we perceive reality or how we know reality. And so just like you, you made a really good distinction there, Ben, about Alma being in fear. It's his fear because that's, that's where he's coming from. He's been in a place where he's been seeking to destroy the church of God, that he's been seeking to his whole worldview, the way he views the world. He's, he doesn't recognize that he's always already in and surrounded by God. Just, just by being around God's creation and the light of Christ that is within and without. Um, I don't mean to get into the whole God is in and through all things that Joseph Smith says is a sectarian notion is false, but just that God, God's nature and his, as Alma says, all things denote that there is a God. He's not seeing that. He's not living in the presence of that. He's completely seeing his own personal carnal view that he's grasped a hold of. And Paul talks about this like the scales that fall from his eyes, right? And that that was that phrase from Paul is really what started getting me down this road that there is reality and then there's our perceptions of reality and that re- and then as soon as I got Paul's statement there, I got to and that's why I love the LDS Bible dictionary's definition of repentance so much. Because it talks about seeing God differently and seeing ourselves differently and seeing each other. It's not that God changes. God is unchanging. He's always who God is. It's that we, and it's not even that we are changing or that somebody else is changing, but we begin to see them differently. And that it be, that that's why it becomes more of an, an epistemic process than a metaphysical one. And that we begin to see 
the true divine and the divinity within ourselves because, you know, going back to uh, the New Testament where it says that we love because God loved us first, that God is love and we are his children and therefore we are love, but we don't act in that. Again, when we don't act in that, our perceptions are of fear, not of love, because perfect love casteth away all fear. So here when he's talking about worthiness, not of any worthiness of myself, it's, you know, in, in the church, we have this culture where we talk about uh, earning. We don't feel like we earn our way to heaven, but we definitely have verbiage where we qualify for the blessings of heaven. And so we qualify for them, that we do X and Y happens, that we do this and something else happens. And so if we push this button, then this is the response. But the thing is, is that in real life, that doesn't always happen. And in fact, more people than not, as I've been talking over the last several months, People have opened up and sharing stories that I've been in groups and I've talked to personally where the gospel for them has started to fall flat in this if-then relationship, in that I've done this and then nothing came. And that I, I so I started doing more X. And so I, you know, I, I did some A and I did some B and I did some C. I started to like go down the checklist of my life and nothing the blessings that were supposedly promised were were not there, or I didn't recognize them, I didn't feel them. And so the, I've seen a thousand responses to uh, to Latter-day Saints in, to these people who are tenderly trying to develop a relationship with the divine where what's been called the checklist gospel is not working for them, the, tra- the transactional if-then um, relationship. And they're beginning to see that as they come into a knowledge and, and kind of a, a an awareness, there, there it is, repentance is an epistemology. They begin to see God differently as a God who always already loves them. They don't have to qualify for God's love. God's love is eternal. It's always going to be there for them. It always has been there for them. That they begin to see that he's always been there. And that's where I think Alma actually lets on that this, that this is actually Alma's experience. Because I see that there's two things going on. And we talked about this a little bit before, Ben. When I think that Alma is having an experience, and then he also has his interpretation of his experience. Mm-hmm. And I think there's two different things going on there with that. And one of the evidences that I found for that is in chapter 38, when he's talking with his son Shiblon, and he says in verse 8, And it came to pass that I was three days and three nights in the most bitter pain of anguish of soul, and never until... I did cry unto the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy that I receive a remission of my sins. And I think this is just absolutely, absolutely incredible. It's this phrase, and never until. It's, it didn't even enter into his consciousness. That It's as though like Alma is just spinning in his own perception of self-destruction. He's in this place where he is racked up with his own guilt and his own sins and his own everything. Everything that he's done, it's always very egoistic. It's always self-centered. It's always focused on what he's done. And he can't perceive anything outside of himself. Just like you said, he was in his own fear. His, he had created a space, a bubble, a perception, a lens to see the world through his fear. And as he saw that, and never until, and then he cried out for Jesus Christ. And it's like the scales fell from his eyes. And all of a sudden, he comes into the presence of what has always already been there. And that is that Jesus Christ was always there. The Father is always there. 
And that's the remission of sins. It's it's the coming around to the awareness of who and what we already are as children of God. And I think Alma, as you said, it's poetry. I think it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, and uh, he says that he experienced all of this torment for three days and three nights. And we could look at this in a punitive sense, right? That this was punishment for his sin. And it was part of his atonement. But that's not at all what's going on here. Because just like you said, never until, what was the phraseology? I got to turn to that verse here. Never until I did cry out unto the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy did I receive a remission of my sins. In other words, nothing that I went through for these three days and three nights did anything to remit or atone for any of my sins whatsoever. That was not a punishment or justice for my sins. That was just me living in fear. Because he talks about fear all the time in here. He says, I was struck with great fear and amazement, lest perhaps I should be destroyed. In verse 11, he says, verse 13, I did remember all my sins and iniquities for which I was tormented with the pains of hell. In verse 14, the very thought of coming into the presence of my God did rack my soul with inexpressible horror. Again, all of these serving to show that the perception of God is that of fear, right? That when he comes into the presence of God, he should fear. And what happens when he actually does come into the presence of God? The complete opposite of that. He says, no pain, just joy, light. and. I, that's amazing to me that Alma, you know, is able to to teach this in such a poetic way to his son. You know, the, verse ten sort of is reminiscent of uh, to me of what happens with Korahor in in one sense. You know, Alma is paralyzed. He says, "I could not open my mouth; neither had I the use of my limbs." Um, he's paralyzed by the fear. I don't, you know, psychologically, I don't. I don't know what's going on here. Uh, I know that par- being paralyzed by fear is a real thing. Um, so maybe maybe some of that is what's going on with Alma here. But it kind of reminds me of Korahor. You know this how Korahor couldn't couldn't speak because of his rejection of the truth that was right in front of him. Um, again, all of these experiences with fear. But uh, this made me think of how we often uh, discuss and refer to Doctrine and Covenants section 19, particularly verses 16 and 17. And this is a revelation given to Joseph Smith where Christ discusses some particulars of the atonement. Um, And he says here in verse 16, For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I. And sometimes we talk about this in the sense that like, okay, if we won't repent, then we'll just have to atone for it just like Jesus did. And then, you know, which would be awful, 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 and we don't want to do it. Um, But then we'll be saved, right? But that's not the doctrine. That's not correct. We look at Alma's experience here. Yes, if you don't repent, you'll have to suffer, even as Christ suffered. But 
that doesn't mean that at the end of that suffering, if there is an end to that suffering, that we will be saved. The only end to that suffering is turning to Christ. And I think that we talk about Doctrine and Covenants section 19 wrong in that concept, in that context, because I think that that is a view and a perception of God as simply punitive um, and not as a God of love that sent Christ so that we could understand who he is. Uh, again, going back to that concept of you know, Christ didn't come to change God's perception of us, but our perception of God. And so uh, here again, Alma is suffering um, not to atone for his sins, but he's suffering because he isn't turning to Christ. One of the things that we've talked about, you and I, Ben, over the years, has been about the waters of Mormon and with Alma. And that came to mind when you were talking uh, just now. And it's something I've been thinking about as well for the last several months and pondering over is just how organic that whole process happened and how there was just this beautiful moment where all of these people gathered around the waters. And the way that Alma describes this in Mosiah 18 is, is he introduces the concept of baptism, but he introduces it as, hey, we've already wanted to do this. We've already wanted to do that. What have you against going into the waters is a symbolism. And it's that phrase, what have you against, you know, when he's trying to reason with them. And I wonder, why, why did Joseph's, I'm sorry, why did Alma say that? And like when Joseph Smith said for us to be able to ask ourselves, why did he, what, what, what were they asking? What was going on in that moment? Because I see there in the waters of Mormon, these people having such an amazing organic experience with God. And then it impresses upon Alma as a way to symbolize this to their their cultural and their their contextual relationship with the scriptures and the Old Testament and how water is chaos. And it's like all of these ideas start coming around of, of going into chaos and coming out of chaos and coming out a new person and how life comes out of chaos and everything that baptism symbolizes. And Alma, it's almost like it just it becomes this organic expression. And people are like, what? What are you talking about? Like going out and getting wet in the water or something about God and, and, and taking a bath? It's like, what are you talking about? And Alma's like, no, 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 no. It's like this. We've already talked about this and we wanted to do this. We've all talked about that and wanted to do that. And this just can be an expression, a symbolic expression of that. And so it's really fascinating how this baptism conversation comes around in Mosiah 18. And I see in a lot of ways throughout the scriptures, I'm beginning to see a different pattern than I have before, where the doctrine of Christ, and, and I, I mean that with like with like quotation marks around Christ, it's the doctrine of what Christ means. So there's the doctrine of Jesus Christ that he gives, like in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and, and that, but it's the doctrine of what Christ is. Like, what is Christ? We... We covenant to take upon ourselves the name of Christ. Well, what does that even mean? And we are supposed to be saved by that name. And what does that even mean? What, what, what's in it in the name, Christ? And one of the things that I'm coming to is that 
part of the natural progression that we have as human beings, I believe, is that as we begin to draw nearer unto God with the intentionality of wanting to have a personal relationship with God, there comes to be an organic expression of our humanity. And it naturally expresses itself. Ben, we, we've pulled the Beatitudes out of almost every story here. In fact, when I was reading Alma 27 before tonight, I found the Beatitudes in Alma's conversion story. I found like five of the Beatitudes there. And I see that the Beatitudes in Christ's Sermon on the Mount becomes the most perfect and pure description of what humanity and what a human being really is. And that as we draw nearer unto God, which is our true telos, the true purpose and reason for our existence, that that word telos, the Greek word by which is called perfect in Matthew 5.48, the be ye therefore perfect, even as our Father in heaven is perfect. That word telos is that it's it's not perfection that you have to be a sinless person. It's to be perfect in that you fulfill the measure of your creation, and the measure of our creation is Christ. What manner of men and women ought we to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am. It's the way of the Christ. And I find that the natural expression of our true humanity is Christ. And so when we we naturally do that, as I read in Third Nephi, and they're arguing over what to call the church. Like, what is this natural expression by which we have come together? And what is this natural expression? What do we call this thing that we've we've come together in this group for to be able to worship and express these, these things that we are coming to experience God with? And Christ says, why are you arguing about this? It's always been Christ. This is Christ. Let me give you a name for what is going on. It is Christ. And that is what I have exampled, and this is what I have shown you. That's why I've made myself, uh, God was made flesh, was to example this humanity. And so as I see that, I see this coming out here in the text when you, when you said that, Ben, about how Alma had been racked with destruction. He'd become racked with the torment, and that he thought in and of himself from that moment of fear, oh, that I would be, I would be you know, desolated, basically. But the minute he comes into the presence of God. And when I thought this, I could remember my pains no more. I was harrowed up by the memory of my sins no more. And oh, what joy and what marvelous light I did behold. Yea, my soul was filled with joy as exceeding as was my pain. Yea, say unto you, my son, there could never, there could be nothing so exquisite and so bitter as were my pains. Yea, and again, I say unto you, my son, that on the other hand, there can be nothing so exquisite and sweet as my joy. Yea, methought I saw, even our father Lehi saw God sitting upon his throne, surrounded with the numberless concourses of angels in the attitude of singing and praising their God. Yea, and my soul did belong to be there. Yeah, see, with that expression, when we finally just allow ourselves to be able to be what we were meant to be and being to be what we are as children of God. And we just naturally follow the progression of developing that pure relationship with Christ, that emanation of what is Christ comes out within us. And when we finally let the scales fall from our eyes, we see what we have always already been. And there, there's no, you know, you were talking about the punitive version here, Ben. There's no evidence here that he paid enough for his sins that then at that point, he was worthy to come into the presence of God. 
It was just, I just said, Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me. And it was, though that's what it took is to identify the without, the Christ from without and the Christ from within. And all that was there present for him was pure felicity. To simply be in the presence of God and for God to be there almost in a way of saying, you've always already been here, but I'm glad you finally see it. I like what you say about that being him identifying something because he says, have mercy on me. You know, up until this point, all he's been worried about is the justice of God, right? The the pain and the, the, the worry, the fear of this justice of God being in his presence. And when he thinks of Christ, he all of a sudden realizes mercy is an option. Mercy is who God is. And instantly, that completely changes his whole view of God. Again, Christ comes to him and changes his view of God from one of fear and punishment to mercy and love. I like what you said about the doctrine of Christ. And, you know, in English, we get to do fun things with uh, words and putting them together to, to give different connotations. So we could say doctrine of Christ, and that can mean different things. That can mean the doctrine that Christ taught, you know, the words that he gave. But it could mean another thing like you were talking about, right? Just the nature of who Christ is and what it means to become like him. Um, you know, you might say the Christ doctrine. And I think that's that's great. I, I would say something like Christ is the only true human being because he exemplifies everything that we can be as human beings. And that the way of Christ is to seek to emulate him, just as he says, what manner of men I eat to be even as I am. So you were talking about the ordinances, you know, particularly the ordinance of baptism is simply just being this natural, organic expression of our commitment and faith. You know, that Al Alma says, you know, this is what we're feeling. We're feeling this desire to be born again and be new creatures. So let's sim let's let's act this out the best we can in our temporal mortal sphere, and let's do something symbolic of this because that's what we do when we hear music we dance right <laughs> it's just yeah. a symbolic action to show how you know what we're really feeling inside and that's what baptism baptism is to be we're, we're you know we're acting out this deep seated commitment and desire to become as Christ um and take upon ourselves his name and so you know, I, I talk about the dance and music it reminds me of the the great general conference talk that was given several years ago. I don't remember who gave it, but he talked about, you know, being able to hear the music and dancing. And I, I loved the analogy there, you know, and thinking about dancing sort of as that outward ordinance, sort of that, that inner uh, expression. And sometimes people can dance without actually hearing the music, right? So it's not an organic expression of their faith, but only they know that. And so... We can definitely look at ordinances that way. And we see, you were talking about Mosiah 18, this people just naturally desired that. Uh, here we go back to Mosiah chapter 5 when Benjamin's preaching and he he preaches to them 
And they just cry with one voice, right? Saying, yes, this is the desire of our hearts. We want to take upon ourselves like it's just this organic expression of that. It's basically a, a their, their baptism in that sense, um, which by the way, I'm not a huge fan of all of the Book of Mormon videos the church has done, but they did uh, the one that they do with King Benjamin is really good. Um, and so I would recommend if you don't watch any of the other Book of Mormon videos, watch that one. It's really well done. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was having a conversation with my wife, with Rachel this afternoon, even, and I was talking about we were talking about church attendance. And about how mixed the responses are that we're hearing from so many friends and people about going back to church and, and the levels of excitement about wanting to kind of stay more like home centered in the way that we're doing it now. <laughs> because mm-hmm. it's it's very home it's like entirely. We've been having those discussions as well, yeah. And and I know a lot of other people are having the exact same kind of discussion. And to to, to be personally to be honest, I'm perfectly okay with things going on the way they're going on, but I'm also having this feelings like I miss I miss that group uh, that group worship. And it, the conversation today had with with Rachel had taken this direction where I started to recognize that in a lot of ways, church and going to church has become almost like an institutional duty as opposed to an organic expression of my discipleship. And and that really did pull up that Mosiah 18 story of just how much of our lives do we go through because that's what the institutional church has set, you know, church at this time, here's the format, here's the, you know, we got, you know, you get up, we have the welcoming, you have the prayer, you have this, you have the hymn, you got the sacrament, then you have your speakers, then you have your prayer, then you have your closing hymn and you're done. And because it's become so formalized, and I find beauty in that formal in that institutional formality, but in in how much of that have we lost that that experience that we're supposed to come with the intentionality to that experience, however formulaic as it is or not, that we are supposed to come to that moment with the intentionality of an, as an organic expression of our discipleship. And I think I've lo- I personally I think I've lost a lot a lot of sight of that. That uh, that I'm I'm looking now that I've identified that of going back and fixing and and trying to regain a lot of that uh, organic love for that, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think that that is what is meant by this discussion of the dance and the music. Right, we have learned these specific steps that we're supposed to do for this specific dance, and we focus so much on the steps of this dance that we've forgotten that the whole purpose of the dance was that it was supposed to go with the music, right? And so we're so focused on the dance that we're not even listening to the music anymore. And so we really need to listen to the music and let it find its expression in the dance, so to speak, right? So I don't really even like dancing, but I thought the analogy is good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as we move on with Alma 37, Alma goes on this long chapter. Alma, I mean, Alma 37 is a very long chapter in context of it with a sandwich between. And he's talking about the plates. And he keeps talking about the plates of brass. And he gives Helam in charge to be able to take care of the plates and to and to do what he was done and to take and to take charge of the, the recording and also to 
make sure that uh, that he maintains his righteousness so that God will preserve him. And then we end up at the very end with this talk about the Liahona, which you and I, Ben, were talking a little bit earlier, and you had observed that Alma identifies everything that was in the box buried by Moroni to be found by Joseph Smith, except for the sword of Laban. Yeah, so uh, here at the beginning of the chapter, he talks about the plates of Nephi, which these are the the classic gold plates. Now, um, they aren't actually the plates that Joseph Smith would have gotten. The plates of Nephi are the plates that Mormon would have taken and used as part of his abridgment. Now, he says plates of Nephi, but there's two sets of plates of Nephi according to Nephi. There's the small plates and the large plates. And we don't know specifically which one he's talking about here um, because apparently all of these has been, have been handed down to them. So we're talking about – maybe he's talking about both, we're talking about the small and the large. In any case, what Joseph Smith actually gets are something different. It's Mormon's abridgment, uh, a different set of gold plates, not the plates of Nephi. That was probably too long of an explanation. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so we have these plates of Nephi, the plates of brass – um, which again, I, I don't, I don't think there's any mention that those were in the box necessarily, uh, that Joseph Smith, uh, recovered. Uh, we have the seer stones that he alludes to here. Um, and then we have the Liahona, but, uh, in connection with all of these artifacts, these objects that seem to kind of follow each other and, and stay together, um, passed down through the generations there was always the sort of Laban that was part of this group. And Alma has no discussion of that. And I, I, I don't, I've just been thinking about that. Like if there's anything to that, I don't, I don't know that there's any meaning to the fact that Alma doesn't talk about it at all, but I wonder if there is. And, and the reason I wonder is because Alma himself has the whole context of the book of Alma um, you know, starting in chapter four is that Alma is leaving behind the sword and the political, and he's just focusing on preaching the word. And so um, he's talking about these things, the plates, the the gold and the brass plates, the seer stones that are used to interpret them. Oh, oh, I didn't mention the 24 gold plates of ether. That's also, he also talks about that. So we're talking about five things here. Um, and then the seer stones, and the Liahona, all of these as metaphors and and specific tools that the Lord uses in order to guide his people and seek to reach out to them and and speak to them on their level and according to their weakness and need for symbolism, need for physical, tangible um, representations of his love and mercy and no mention of the sword of Laban. And I just can't help but wonder if that is because Alma is has really seemed to uh, reject war as as a tool or a method of preserving society at this point. You know, he's he's constantly just trying to go preach, and even the whole context of these chapters, right, of him talking to his sons, is is because the people are preparing to go to war again. The Nephites are all preparing to go to war again, and. He even says here in chapter 37, verse 10, he says, 
And who knoweth but what they will be the means of bringing many thousands of them, he's talking about the Lamanites, yea, and also many thousands of our stiff-necked brethren, the Nephites, who are now, in this moment, who are now hardening their hearts in sin and iniquities to the knowledge of their Redeemer. And so, again, I can't help but wonder if this conspicuous no mention of the sword of Laban means that it has sort of lost significance or importance to Alma. Maybe maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it's interesting to me. Yeah, when you brought that up, I'd never considered or recognized that. But we also know that the sword of Laban does play a prominent role in the Nephite narrative as far as Nephi was concerned, because that sword is the one that Nephi obviously takes with him when he leaves uh, Laman and Lemuel, and the and the family formally splits to become Nephi's Lamanites, and he fashions all of his swords to defend themselves accordingly, and so it becomes almost synonymous with a scepter, and the the call for authority, the call for the one who has the right. Uh, Nephi, I've I've seen comparisons between Nephi and Joseph in Egypt, that as the younger brother, he's the one who's given the charge over the family. And that he was given the the authority to do all that, and the Lord even tells him that right. So Nephi, in taking over the the authority of the family, as it were, the the sword seems very symbolic of that. And we haven't gone into detail at all with these podcasts, but Second Nephi six through uh, yeah, it's really six through uh, was eleven or twelve with Jacob's sermon. Jacob's yeah. With yeah. his sermon, and he prefaces the whole thing because Nephi was never supposed to be king. We know that there were never supposed to be kings on the land, and Nephi's seeming acquiescence to becoming king, he, he, Nephi doesn't really want to take on the title first of all, but then at that point, Jacob kind of has this uh, this little, I don't know if it's a dig or what it is, but he, he says- <laughs> <It's a> jab. There's <laughs> almost like a little jab, right? Where he's talking to the Nephites just after they've made Nephi be their king. And he says, Nephi, whom you call your king. And he has this, this little thing about it, but it's always- To in, whom you look for protection, right? Or to whom you look as a protector or something, something like that. That's right, because that's what kings were in the Old Testament, you know, is yeah. that the kings were supposed to be ju- the juxtaposition between the kingdoms of men who had kings and the kingdoms of God that had judges and the kingdoms of God were never to have kings, but then the people transgressed and that's the hell Samuel principle in first Samuel yeah. eight when, yeah. when God, that's a whole other podcast shadow. That's a whole different <laughs> podcast. We're, yeah. We're not getting into that, but it, but that's the whole story. That's a sub narrative that I is really, I find playing out throughout the whole book of Mormon is this, com, this comparison of the old Kings versus, uh, judges and how the Nephites gave up their king to have judges. And so it, I see it also playing out here in, in interesting ways and that sort of Laban. So when you brought that up, it started bringing back a lot of other ideas that I've had about what the sort of Laban is, its symbolism, why it was buried with the plates, when, with, the, with the gold plates and with the Urim and Thummim and the breastplate and the Liahona. And why all those things, why those artifacts were buried, um, what symbolism, what metaphor they, they also had there. So, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. You know, uh, again, a, a little side note just thought I had on this was that the Lamanites didn't have any such sword in order to uh, 
as a pattern to fashion their weapons after. Because Nephi says that he made swords after, you know, the pattern of the sword of Laban. Lamanites didn't have anything. So, so there's kind of this um, implied imbalance between the uh, technology or war weaponry of the Nephites and the Lamanites. This gets discussed later in the war chapters, how the Nephites have apparently so much better armor and technology and fortifications and all this stuff. And the, and the Lamanites don't have any of that. And this, this idea seems to have sort of stemmed from the concept that, uh, or the idea that Nephi had the sword of Laban was able to you know, fashion weapons after its manner. And that's what has preserved the, the Nephites all of this time. And this is even discussed by uh, Zarahemna when we get into those chapters next. I guess we're, we're all getting ahead of ourselves here, but this is all in the context of Alma not talking about the sword of Laban. You know, Zarahemna says, you know, we don't believe that your God has preserved you. We believe that it's, you know, your better weapons and your armor and stuff like that. And, uh, and it's just, it's interesting to me because those are the competing narratives here among the Nephites. Is it God that's preserving us or our better technology? You know, are, are we just more clever and have better technology? And so that's why we're, we're able to win these wars. Yeah, unless, unless you're like, you're Americans and then it's, you have better technology because God has preserved you, right? Sure. Well, and then we, then we get to quote from Spencer W. Kimball again, if you want, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll bring that, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll be bringing that up when we uh, have the future discussion, but. Going back to Alma 37. <laughs> yeah. It's such a good quote. I mean, come digress. on. I digress, <laughs> but it's such a good quote. President Kimball really rocked that one. I'm, I really like Alma 37 33 when after telling Helaman, saying, listen, preach the gospel to the people, but here's also a record of all the, all the secret, kind of like black oaths or the, all of the things that have come from the adversary, all of the other greedy, murderous, lying abominations that have been recorded and preserved, kind of kind of the antithesis of God's way, had these have been preserved well as well, and all the secret combinations and works of darkness, they've also been recorded. He's like, don't let all that out. <laughs> you don't need to be able to teach that. I think there's a, an interesting point there in that a lot of the times we preach the gospel by talking about the antithesis of something as opposed to just talking about what we're talking about. You know, we talk about sin a lot as opposed to talking about righteousness. And I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of value to what Alma is telling Helaman. But then he says in verse 33, Preach unto them repentance and faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach them to humble themselves and to be meek and lowly of heart. And teach them to withstand every temptation of the devil with their faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love that. I mean, meekness, humble, lowly of heart, being pouring, you know, that pouring spirit, you know, beatitude language there all over again. Teach them to never be wary of good works, to be meek and lowly of heart for such find rest to their souls. You know, blessed are those who are persecuted, for they shall be comforted. And oh, remember my son and learn wisdom in thy youth. Yea, learn in thy youth to keep the commandments of God. Yea, cry unto God for all thy support. Yea, let thy all thy doings be unto the Lord. And whithersoever thou goest, let it be in the Lord. Yea, let all thy thoughts be directed unto the Lord. Yea, let the affections of thine heart be placed upon the Lord forever. Counsel with the Lord in all of thy doings, and he will direct thee for good. Yea, and when thou liest down at night, lie down unto the Lord, that he may watch over you in your sleep. And when thou risest in the morning, let thy heart be full of the thanksgiving to God. 
And if you do these things, you shall be lifted up at the last day. I think this is one of the most beautiful charges I've ever read in my life. I've, I've always absolutely loved these verses. And about just the, the meekness and the humility of coming to God and this Alma's way of being able to show the love of God in such pure ways of saying, you know, counsel with the Lord, do all of these things. When you go to sleep, when you wake up, let it all be according to the Lord. And this kind of knowledge only comes by doing it. And Alma certainly knows what the mercy and the love of God are. He certainly followed this path. And as he said, don't suppose that I know this just in and of myself, of myself, but because of God that has brought this knowledge to me. I think it's beautiful. This kind of goes along with what you were talking about last time in terms the the definition of faith and belief or the distinction between faith and belief. And I see Alma here like really kind of uh, giving us a definition of what our faith is in, right? That when you're or describing, I guess, more than a definition, a description um, sort of of what it would mean to really act out your faith, right? You're going to do all of these things um, because it's going to, it's going to consume. It makes you tick, right? Your faith is what makes you tick. And this is your God. And so this is how you worship your God. This is how you have faith in him. You know, I, I see Alma when he's talking about these secret works of darkness and, and the things he, that Helaman should tell the people about the things he shouldn't tell them about. I see him kind of saying, you know, don't be naive. Evil exists. Um, but also don't delve so much into it. What's the quote from Nietzsche? Like, you know, when you look into the darkness, the darkness looks into you, right? Yeah. <laughs> don't be aware. Don't be naive to the fact that evil exists in the world. But really your focus should be on Christ. And and repentance, right? That know what know what evil exists, but really focus on Christ. Yeah, I really think that plays out too, because once thirty eight, verse thirty eight of thirty seven, because once Alma thirty seven thirty eight starts, he starts going into the Liahona, and how does the Liahona work except by faith? And so he says, and there cannot be any man. And behold, there cannot any man work after the manner of so curious a workmanship. And behold, it was prepared to show unto our fathers the course in which they should travel in the wilderness. And it did work for them according to their faith in God. Therefore, if they had faith to, to believe that God would cause that these spindles should point the way they should go, behold, it was done. And so it talks about the miracle of this. And yeah, it just goes in and, and expounds upon that faith and about what that faith does to leading us to experience the Word of God. You know, it, it, it occurred to me the other day when I was thinking about the process of knowledge in coming to God that in that Lehi's dream, where he is in the midst of darkness, all he has is the Word of God. All he has is just the, the, the iron rod. And he hasn't yet tasted of the love of God. He hasn't yet kind of experience the telos. He hasn't gotten to that place where he knows that that's the purpose by which he's traveling. He's just in a place where he's got this rail on the side and he doesn't even see where it's leading to, right? He's going through the mist of darkness and it's like you don't even know where it's leading to. And so there's this confusion that you have to have this trust in this thing without ever seeing its benefit or even really even knowing what it is. 
But by putting one foot in front of the other, you progress forward until you are then at some point, you are then in and enveloped with the love of God and you taste it. And it is miraculous. And so at that point, I love uh, Alma 3744, when he's talking about the word of Christ and just how easy it is to follow the word of Christ, word of the word of Christ. He says, for behold, it is as easy to give heed to the word of Christ, which will point you point to you a straight course to eternal bliss, as it was for our fathers to give heed to this compass, which would point unto them a straight course to the promised land. Yeah. You know, Brigham Young made this statement once where he's, and I'm paraphrasing, because I don't even remember where I read the quotes. It's probably not, it's definitely Brigham Young. I'm going to say it's definitely Brigham Young. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. You know, <laughs> no, that poor guy, he probably has a ton of stuff attributed to him that he never said. On the other hand, he might have said every single one of the things that are attributed to him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, I, I know this is Brigham Young. I was reading it just not too long ago. I know the book and I can find the quote. But he talks about how the gospel of Jesus Christ really is super simple to live, that the path really is easy. What is hard is our pride. It's the pride that comes up within us that prohibits us from seeing the easiness of the path. That it's the pride from letting go. And it's the word I've, I've talked about before that I'm starting to absolutely love called surrender. I love that word surrender. Um, when we, I talk a lot about identity and about the power of identity and about how that affects every aspect of our lives and about how repentance deals with that. And one of the very foundational elements in scholar, scholars talk about, and, and the scriptures even, is the strongest layers of identity that we have come from the greatest amount of suffering and sacrifice that we've been through. I'm going to say that again because that's really important, that the level of suffering and sacrifice that we've been through in a particular thing, that solidifies our identity more than anything else. So however much suffering and sacrifice we put into our faith is really how much that, that identity lands for us because we start creating stories and myths around our suffering and sacrifice narratives that end up forming the most fundamental bedrock of our identities. And so I've studied a lot over the last several years about the suffering and sacrifice narratives and what that whole thing is about. And I've wondered, and the question I've wondered is, is there a way to get to the destination of where suffering and sacrifice leads us without suffering and sacrifice? Because suffering and sacrifice have a lot of preconceived notions and there's a lot of kind of a priori elements that go into the suffering and sacrifice narratives. And it just occurred to me not too long ago that the fundamental underpinning of the suffering and sacrifice narrative is surrender. That the all suffering and sacrifice, that whole narrative of of offering sacrifice and of suffering and, and of that and that scriptural narrative, the underpinning of all of that has always been for us to simply let go, to surrender. You know, that's the heart of sacrifice, to let go of one thing of value for something of greater value. It's the surrender of whatever we find valuable to receive something of greater value. It's it's the release, the surrender that's the important part there. And so and now I'm starting to really get into this whole concept of what is the surrender experience and is there something below that? 
and uh, I haven't gotten there yet. I, I don't know. I'm still kind of trying to peel open the layers to find out what the surrender narrative is there. But in doing that, I see a lot of what Alma is charging his sons here with keeping the commandments so that they will prosper, having that same element of surrender. It's surrendering your will and surrendering what you think is the right way to keeping the commandments. Because keeping the commandments is more than just doing commandments. You know, he doesn't say go out there and do the commandments. He says keep them. It's a way of actually bringing them into everyday life. It becomes a, a way of being. And so it's surrendering the old to be able to come into the new. And, and I just, I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot to unfold there that I haven't, I haven't quite gotten myself. Well, I, I know, I remember us having discussions about this, the gospel is easy deal um, many years ago. I, I want to say 12, 13 years ago as having this discussion. It kind of uh, was sparked by that. Oh, uh, I don't know what it is. It's this uh, common quoted uh, little phrase. I never said it would be easy. Only said it would be worth it. <laughs> and yeah, I know we we had some discussions about how we we just didn't really care for that type of thing. And uh, you know, it was back and forth. You know, we tried to you know reformulate that better. It was more accurate, more consistent with the gospel. And then. <laughs> And then I think there was like some time where Apostle quoted it in general conference and we were like, oh, whatever. <laughs> but but uh, it, it, in, in any case, you know, Alma uses the word easy here. He says it's as easy to give heed to the word of Christ, which will point you in a straight course to the eternal bliss, to eternal bliss, as it was for our fathers to give heed to this compass. You know, Nephi does talk about the way being easy or the way being simple. And um, Alma doesn't necessarily say it is easy. He says it's as easy as, right? And um, it's just a decision. It's just a choice. And you can make the choice as hard as you want or as easy as you want is what Alma is telling us here. And uh, so I I just think, you know, the gospel is easy. It's, it's all the other stuff that we do that's hard. <laughs> The gospel is easy. The hard part is everything else that we do instead of the gospel. <laughs> and like you were talking about, it's letting go of that to accept the gospel, that the letting go is the hard part, but the actual living of the gospel itself is, is easy. But then, you know, life is constantly cramming into uh, our heads that we have all these other things to do besides the gospel. And so constantly having to find ways to let go of those things is the hard part. There was a meme that we shared and we've already talked about before, and I'm going to paraphrase it because neither one of us can remember exactly what it says. <laughs> and we just, so one of us needs to memorize it. Change happens immediately and can happen immediately. It's everything that leads up to the change that takes a long time. And for me, what that means is that I have had moments when, when repentance comes, it's instantaneous. Like, it's boom, it's there. I was one person then, boom, I am now completely someone else. But then when I look back on the process, it's taken me a long time to get to that moment of change when it just, like, metamorphosis happened, like, that fast. Yeah, there's a lot and of groundwork going on. A lot of groundwork. And I think a lot of that groundwork is, it's like a kid, I, so I used to dive as a, as a teenager. 
and I used to be heavily competitive in, in diving. And so I would watch little kids all the time on their first try on a diving board. And, you know, little babies all the way up to little kids, sometimes adults. It was kind of fun. And inevitably, they all have the same reaction where they're like, most of them will get up right up next to the diving board or right at the end of the diving board. And sometimes if they're small enough, the lifeguard will let like a parent go out to catch him or something. But uh, but they stand there and it's that anticipation of like, I've never done this before. What's on the other side of this experience? And it's just anticipation and anticipation and more anticipation until finally they make the jump. And you can just see that there's so many mixed emotions. It's like fear and terror, but like excitement and happy and thrill and just everything all mixed into like one half second moment while they're in the air before they hit the water and come back up. And I think in a lot of ways, that's my repentance process where I'm perpetually at the end of a diving board, ready to jump in. And the Lord's just telling me all the time, like, you got this, you can jump in anytime you want. It's never going to be any different. And it, <laughs> you just jump in. And I am there. Leap of the, faith. Yeah, the leap of faith. And I'm just there always just kind of like getting my arms and rocking my arms back and forth and crouching my legs and like I'm ready to pounce on the water or something. And then it's so simple. You just jump and it's exciting and it's fun. But it takes the buildup, as you said, is so intense. And I like what you said there. It's as easy as or as hard as you want to make it. And it really just comes down to those moments that uh, the hardness in my life has been completely and entirely of my own making. God has never made it hard. I've made it really difficult. So moving on to the last chapter here, chapter 38, where Alma talks with his son Shiblon, you know, there's uh, basically some, some very similar types of instruction and uh, advice and doctrine that he gives to Shiblon here almost in a more condensed form. I don't know if his discussion with Shiblon actually was longer, and this is either Alma's abridgment of the discussion or Mormon's abridgment of the discussion. But, um, you know, we've already talked about verses 8 and 9. Those are just, you know, the some golden nuggets here in this chapter. Really great stuff there in the context of Alma's experience and everything. And um, I've always, you know, then Alma gives great advice to Shiblon, as good as he gives to Helaman in the, the end of the chapter. And uh, I really like how he references and pulls back in the Zoramites experience, you know, and, and says, hey, this is, this is something that you can really take away from what you experienced when you were among the Zoramites. Verse 14, he says, do not say, oh God, I think the, that we are better than our brethren, but rather say, oh Lord. Forgive my unworthiness and remember my brethren in mercy. Yea, acknowledge your unworthiness before God at all times. So I know he says unworthiness twice there, Shiloh. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not triggered. That is absolutely beautiful. good. <laughs> but but in the context of Alma's experience and what he's talking about here, it is. It's so beautiful that that Alma is saying, "Look, just be humble." I, I'm telling you, even after I had my my experience i still had to do some repenting um you know after alma has his experience you still see in alma chapter one two three four five and all the way on all these discussions we've been having for these past weeks alma is repenting we see him going through a repentance process this entire time even when he gets to the zoramites he has to go through this whole struggling in the spirit right to be able to prepare and and preach 
And so he's telling Shiblon, I don't care how righteous you think you are. You're not righteous enough. (laughs) Um, You really have to stay humble and realize that the Lord, um, you need the mercy of the Lord just as much as everyone else. And so preach with humility and love because the Lord loves these people you're teaching just as much as he loves you. Yeah. And speaking there to the unworthiness, I, I really find that that placement of unworthiness there as an epistemic layer is really powerful because our unworthiness in talking about grace, uh, if this concept is that metaphysically, if in reality, we're always already worthy, but what that tends to pull apart, pull to that when we are in a state of where we still have the scales in our eyes and we're not seeing things clearly, and when we pause it, well, I'm already worthy, it, that tends to bring in this this type of, well, I'm already saved in my sin. And that's not what we're talking about here because it's not a justification for sin to all to always be already worthy. It's that you are recognizing that in your transgression, stop finding justification for your having the, those those filters on your eyes. But in this case, there's a recognition that through the grace of God, grace is, and this is kind of borrowing from Brad Wilcox in, in a BYU devotional he gave us pretty famous at BYU, when he, he says that God is not in the gaps. No, the grace of God is not in the gaps. It's, it's all-encompassing of everything that God is. That it, it, it's everything, not just the gaps. And that this unworthiness here is to realize that there really is nothing that we do of our own accord. There's no earning our way into heaven. There's no, you know, checking up and putting all of the the right, checking the right boxes to make sure that we've just done all the right things. But at all times, we have done nothing of our own accord. We could have lived an absolutely perfect life and that would have meant nothing. That everything comes down to the grace of God. And to remember the forgiveness of that in which we are... How am I trying to say this? To remember that we are always there with God. He's always loving us and bringing us around. And that it's not that we have to earn ourselves into that love, but that it's not something we deserve, I guess is what I'm trying to say. That we're not here trying to deserve God or to be deserving of God. That we, in our fallen state, are uh, in the perception of our fallen state, are already there in in the arms of God, but we just have to learn how to be there and to have humility in that state as we come out into a a state of knowing God. You know, I had a language teacher at BYU that talked about some research that he had done into how people acquire a language. And um, it's always been interesting to me when he, the the experience or the, the research that he did on that, because He talked about how when you're learning a new language, people will reach a point often where they are proficient enough in the language to sort of have conversation and navigate. And there's something that there's, there's something that can happen psychologically. Um, at that point, a person can say, okay, um, I, I got it. You know, I, I understand well enough. I've got the language. And, or they can, or they can view themselves as constantly needing to improve. And it's almost a subconscious type of decision that gets happening. And it actually causes a change in the brain 
And if a person believes that they have sufficient knowledge, then their ability to progress and acquire the language further is severely uh, diminished. Whereas if they view it as constantly needing to improve in that language, their rate of improvement is much better and much higher. So it's this sort of like um, paradoxical thing where like the confidence um, of your ability actually impedes your progress as opposed to um, your uh, your recognition that you still have a long way to go as improving that. Now, obviously, that either one takes or the the recognition of your long way to go still takes a lot of desire and drive to go that way. But uh, it, it has some interesting parallels to our spiritual progression, right? And, and in this context that you were talking about, you know, if we believe ourselves to be sufficiently humble or sufficiently spiritual, then that often will blind us to so many of the things that we really do need to continue to improve. If we reach a point in the Beatitudes, we're like, okay, you know, I got, I got those first two Beatitudes. That's good enough. You know, I, two out of eight's good, right? <laughs> um, then it actually, it's, it goes along with the gospel, uh, the principle that's taught multiple times in the scriptures. When we say we have enough, we lose what we even have. And uh, so I think that's, that kind of goes along with what he's talking about here. You know, maintain your humility and recognition that everything that you have been given of the Lord is out of his mercy. And if you want more, then you have to remain humble and and keep extending mercy to others as well. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Yes, I think you said it much better than I did. I agree. That's that's what I was trying to get at, I, and I was fumbling with my words. <laughs> you said it much better than I did. <laughs> well, cool. Well, next week we are going over everything about Corianton, and that is a that is a, that is a really interesting discussion. I really think in a lot of ways, you know, it's it's about sexual sin. It's always labeled as the sexual sin chapters, but there's so much more to it than that. And there's so very I'm little so, discussion of that fact. <laughs> I know, right? That's how it's always labeled. Like Corianton, what did he do? He was over with the is over with the uh, the harlot. But uh, then at that point, there's just so much that Alma unfolds into Corianton that uh, you know it's gonna be it's gonna be exciting to get through it. So. Yeah, um, I've I think I've recently sort of changed my uh, perspective of some of the principles that Alma is teaching in here in terms of you know our what we're using or the the template that we're using to approach the scriptures um, as we read through them this time. A lot of the things that Alma talks about in terms of justice and mercy with this new perspective that I've had on it actually feel a lot more consistent and. And true with the character of God, whereas before it was sort of this detached, impersonal type of thing. So, yeah, I'm excited to have a a deeper discussion about that. Awesome. Well, everyone, thank you for listening. And as always, if you have any comments or, or ideas, let us know. We're always interested in feedback, and we can't wait until we have the discussion next week. So until then, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thanks for listening.